Well, yesterday, the uh, men of the church family went uh, on a walk together. It was a, a pretty gentle walk in the countryside, pretty good. The only challenging bit was uh, just a bit of mud that uh, the guys navigated well. We made it through. It was pretty easy going. Did you know the longest walk possible that you can do on this earth is if you were to walk from the very bottom of South Africa all the way, this is without getting a plane or a boat or anything, you can walk all the way to the very northeast of Russia. It's a a walk that experts reckon would take you about three years. So a pretty mammoth walk. But there is a longer walk. Not so physical, but a spiritual metaphor for our life and our church life together. It's described in the Bible as a walk. So, are you walking the walk? Because in all of the distractions of life, and life can be pretty tough and brutal at times, you could think that your walk is marked by suffering, or a walk where you feel incredibly lonely. You could define your walk by actually going completely a different direction, it feels like, to all the people around you. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today, it's worth considering what direction your life is headed and what your spiritual walk is, what the destination is. And if you are a Christian, then in the midst of uh, all that life can throw at us, a big question in the New Testament letter of Ephesians is simply, how should we conduct ourselves on this new walk? If we are walking the walk, how should we be conducting ourselves? Look at verse 1 here. It's Paul who is writing. That's uh, the I, therefore. Uh, He used to hate Christians, but now he's a prisoner for the Lord, meaning he's locked up for believing in Jesus. And he begins this passage with a, a, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Essentially, the second half of the book of Ephesians is going to be exploring what the new walk looks like. What is the new walk? How are we to walk it? The first three chapters of the book were Paul praising God for all that he has done, all the blessings that Christians have if they are in Christ. And he's been praying for them. He's been encouraging them. It's been a doctrine-heavy letter, we might say, so far. And now, Paul is moving into practice. Doctrine and practice. In in essence, it's, you've got the right knowledge, now how are you living it? You've got Christ, so what is your culture? And it's the same for us today. How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, the first half of chapter 4 gives us Uh, Three things to uh, meditate on this morning. The first is that we are to walk in unity. Look at uh, verse 3 with me. Uh, Paul is urging them to walk in a way that is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice Paul isn't saying, now that you've got Jesus, create some unity. He's saying, no, now that you've got Jesus, maintain the unity of that you have been given. This unity secured by Christ, who broke down the dividing walls of hostility, as we saw previously in chapter 3. 
It's given by the Spirit. So if you are a Christian here today, if you'd call yourself a follower of Christ, well, you are united to all other Christians. We don't have to be artificial in seeking unity, in creating unity. We don't have to come up with it by ourselves. We don't need to go searching around for things that we can unite on. We get to unite in Christ. So our church culture should be a family, a body, a united group. Not uniting around anything, but uniting around Christ. If you see that, as Paul explained in chapter 2, we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. We've now been made alive in Christ, this gift of grace through his sacrifice on the cross. Our sins are dealt with. We turn our back on them and we live for Christ. The very center circle of our life has changed. What was important, most important to us before, our our job, our success, our family, now takes a back seat and Jesus Christ is in the driving seat. So you, if you're here today, and that is your story, you have more in common with a Christian who lived 700 years ago. You have more in common with a Christian who now lives in sub-Saharan Africa than your closest non-Christian friend. That is the reality of Christian unity. And it's why when churches split and splinter and schism... It's a really sad thing. It's why when Christians try to unite around things that are not Christ, it doesn't work. So you may have seen headlines of the Church of England bishops insisting that everyone is going to continue walking together in unity, even when some are actively seeking to say that God blesses what the Bible calls sin. Those bishops, they're living in an unbiblical fantasy land. The unity of Christ's church exists solely around the gospel of Christ. That is the unity that we've received, and it's the unity that we get to maintain. Just why is this so important to Paul? It's partly because of the context that he's writing in. A place marked, Ephesus, a place marked by differences. A whole mix of people coming together. But you also need to see that it is a unity is a foundation of all that we do, and in fact, comes with deep theological foundations itself. Look at verse 4 with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a deep theological foundation to unity. We are, as the church, one body. Paul already explained in chapter 2 that Christ's sacrifice means that we're reconciled to God as one body. The removal of sin that alienates us from God, has been removed from that alienation of one another as well. Together we're one body. And then Paul adds, we're one spirit. The same spirit that we were sealed with in chapter 1. 
We have access to the Father through the one Spirit in chapter 2. We're made a dwelling place for God by this one Spirit in chapter 2. We are inwardly strengthened by this Spirit in chapter 3. And we are graced with the unity of the one Spirit in chapter 4. So God cares that we are united. Our oneness reflects the one spirit that's doing all of these different things in the Christian life. And so we also have one hope. That's not just one feeling of hope, but it's the content of our hope. Christ, he's our only hope. And there's one Lord, verse 5, clearly referring to Jesus. So we've got the spirit in verse 4, Jesus in verse 5, the father in verse 6, the God who is one. In the days when Paul is writing, Caesar, the Roman emperor, would have been called Lord by lots of people. And the cult of Artemis, this uh, temple in the middle of the city of Ephesus, well, people would have called Artemis Lord as well. But the Bible is clear. There is one Lord. So we worship the God who is the one Lord over all. There's one faith, verse 5. Not one person's faith, one attitude of believing. It is the objective content of what we believe. And so later, when in our passage, when Paul describes us as being built up until we, in verse 13, have the unity of the faith, we're all to be on the same page. One baptism. When you're welcomed into the family of the one church, the one body, you're baptized, dipped physically into water, baptized in the name of the one Lord and the one God. And then Paul concludes our seven reasons, if you like, for unity by saying there is one God, the Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is showing God is above all, the most powerful, sovereign Lord over everything. Through all and in all shows that he is our imminent God, we might say, who's available, powerful, and present with us. This is uh, Paul going really big on deep theological foundations for the basis of our unity. But think about the practical implications of this just for a minute. If we attempt to manufacture unity around anything other than Christ, what does it say about what we believe? Well, the implication is that the one God is not actually one. If we say to somebody uh, who joins our church that they need to be rebaptized because it wasn't us who baptized them, well, we're effectively saying that we're not one united church worldwide. If we uh, prioritize anything over Christ, our one Lord, uh, then we're no better than those who called Caesar their Lord or Artemis their Lord. There are implications then, theologically, if we're not united for what we believe. And so we're to maintain unity. We have these theological reasons, these foundations for doing so. But just how are we to do that? How can we do it? practically every day. We'll have a look at, uh, back at verse 2. A walk is to be marked with humility and gentleness, uh, patience and bearing with one another in love. Humility, not thinking 
too much of ourselves. Uh, gentleness, using our strengths appropriately, and not being overbearing, but instead serving one another. And with patience, uh, bearing with one another in love, quick to forgive. If on our walk, we're going to be eager to maintain unity as a, as a church family together, our walk needs to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. But a helpful way to think about this, to apply it, might be to think, uh, what are the enemies of unity? Uh, it would be the opposites of these, wouldn't it? Uh, in a way, uh, what would Satan want me to think about unity? So it would be pride, not humility. So thinking too much of yourself, or indeed thinking of yourself too much. We might think that the uh, opposite of gentleness is aggression, but it could even just be the the wrong application of our strengths. So uh, I'm someone just naturally in my temperament, I'm not very afraid of confrontation. And uh, that in itself, used appropriately, can be a great strength. Uh, But to be gentle in that strength means not seeking confrontation for the sake of it, not uh, picking fights and arguments. So I have to be gentle. It's a challenge. Impatience, not bearing with one another in love. These are surely two of the greatest dangers to our united Christian walk. Because everyone here is different. Different personalities, different backgrounds, different temperaments, which is a great thing. But there'll be times when we annoy each other. We find each other difficult when we try each other's patience. There will be times when uh, we have the option to be impatient or patient, where we can bear with one another or love, or with love, or we can hold on to grudges with bitterness. So be aware. There are enemies of unity. Each one of us needs to take responsibility personally uh, for them because succumbing to them means that we're damaging church unity. Instead, We need to be eager to maintain unity. It has deep theological foundations, and we need to be on our guard against letting it slip. But the next characteristic of the walk is that we get to walk in diversity. You see, everybody has gifts, and everyone brings something to the table. Look at verses 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18 there. Uh, The picture is Christ, like a victorious king after battle, handing out treasure and reward to his people. In fact, he gives grace to each of us. Not here talking about uh, saving grace, but if you like, ministry grace. The gifts that he is here talking about is what we use to serve one another, to help each other on our walk. So do you know that if you're on the Christian walk, you have an important role? You have gifts that you can use to serve others on their walk. You might not think you're the most qualified. You might not think that you're the most able most talented. But these gifts are 
not based on your, your merits. What are they based on? Look at verse 7. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ, the victorious king, graciously and sovereignly distributes gifts to every member of his body. In verses 9 and 10, Paul explains uh, this quote from the psalm a bit more. Essentially, by saying Christ has ascended, it implies that he descended. We call it the incarnation, him coming to earth, taking on flesh. But where is he now? He's ascended above all things. If you think back to chapter 1, Christ was described as far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. He is the giver of gifts. It's that same Christ. So this is who we are doubting if we say, I've got nothing to bring to church. I'm not gifted. How am I supposed to help others in their Christian walk? That is who we're doubting. It's the God who took on flesh. The God who went to the cross for the forgiveness of sin. Who rose again, defeating death. He is the ascended, the risen, the ruler, reigning over all. He is the one who who gives gifts. Everyone has them. And then Paul highlights some of them as word gifts. Or maybe more accurately, uh, these gifts are word roles. In verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are people to be a gift to the church. The apostles, that uh, first select group of uh, eyewitnesses chosen by Jesus, authorized by him, eyewitnesses of the resurrection to build his church. The prophets here is... Uh, Not the Old Testament type, but it's those who spoke God's truth to the church. And then there's evangelists, the people who were going from place to place with the good news of Christ. And then the shepherds and the teachers. It's worth noting that the the shepherds and teachers aren't really uh, two separate categories here. Shepherds means pastors, church leaders, and all pastors are to be teachers, but not all teachers to be pastors. So Paul is referring to each one of these, um, and he's, he's saying that they have an added responsibility, um, that, that they have word gifts, and uh, these are in all, in a sense, some, somehow to do with getting God's word into God's people. There are other lists of gifts in the New Testament, including uh, hospitality and, and such things that aren't so much to do with the direct spreading of God's word. But, and though there are neither apostles nor prophets in that original sense today, there's still a great need for evangelists, for pastors, for pastor teachers. So maybe you aren't sure what you're gifted in. You think, what am I bringing to the table? I don't know. Well, first, why not ask God to give you gifts? He is the generous God, ascended above all. He is able to give good gifts. And next, give things a go. Why not volunteer for Sunday school and see if you could be a gifted Bible teacher? Ask a friend for a coffee and think about how you might be an encouragement to them, that itself, a gift. If you have 
uh, great ideas for outreach and evangelism. Well, step out, get planning, give it a go. And please do speak to uh, Marcus, to myself, to Fiona, and talk through gifts. We'd love to encourage you, to equip you, to discern with you, whether uh, word gifts or other gifts. Please don't delay. You bring something to the table. This is the diversity of God's body. But why is Paul going on about these specific gifts? Why does he uh, hold these word gifts out? Why would Jesus give uh, these people to his church and call them a gift? Well, it's for a purpose, isn't it? It's for us to get building, for each of us to build each other up. Uh, Look at verse 12. Uh, These gifts are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the purpose of their being pastors at St. Peter's Barge is to equip God's holy people, that's all of us here, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the work of ministry, his, his church being built up. That's the point of Marcus and I having these roles. There are some models of church out there where the uh, pastor, the minister, does all of the work and his people sort of uh, come to him uh, every week and they get uh, spiritually nourished and fed, uh, fed and it's you know, completely top down. Uh, sort of like, uh, think of it like uh, queuing at a canteen and uh, you're all there with your tray of food and your portion of food is uh, dolloped out uh, by the chef. There's a problem with that though because the chef ha- only has so many hours in a day. The queue can get quite long. There can only be so much food prepared. So no one is full. The chef gets exhausted and everyone's a little bit unhappy and unsatisfied. But how it should be, Paul explains, is more like a bring and share feast. The chef has taught people how to cook and he's helping them to teach others. And this way, rather than everyone queuing and getting their portion, they instead all get to contribute and all get to share. So let's get building. You may have seen uh, these barge vision cards. There's a a stack of them at the table at the back corner. Uh, You can see the phrase on it, move right and look left, is on them. In the language of this passage, we might say, walk the new walk of the Christian life. And use your gifts to build up others as you go. Now, you may not be sure where to begin. Or you may have given it a go and it's not quite worked out. Or uh, you're doing this and it's pretty tiring stuff, particularly on top of the the day job and the kids and etc. Do you see the answer is in this passage? Not only have we all got gifts that we can use for building, but we can get help. We can get equipped by our pastors. So maybe this week, uh, you come to Marcus or myself and you say, I'd like to get better at this. I'd like to be helping to build up God's people at St. Peter's Barge. What a great first step. Maybe this week you pick up a book of the term with somebody from Growth Group and you read it together. Or you sign up to The Weekend Away and you encourage a friend who isn't sure if they're, they're coming or not to join you. I'll walk is to be a diverse one. Everyone with different gifts, and the word gifts are to build up the church together. Finally, our walk is to be a mature one. Walk in maturity. It's uh, verse uh, 12 and 13. Until we 
uh, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're to be built up so that we mature up. We're to have unity of the faith. That's coming to agreement about uh, what we believe from the the biblical apostolic teaching, the the unity of the knowledge of Christ. Essentially, uh, the very ground, that theological ground of our unity is the ground of our entire Christian walk. It's built on that theological foundation. All the way to mature manhood, uh, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. What does this mean? Well, the church, the one body of Christ, is to grow into adulthood, uh, to be filled up to the fullness of Christ. It's essentially to look like Christ, to become like Christ, to be so full of Christ that it simply overflows, saturates, and permeates everything that we do. It's what Paul was praying for for the church in Ephesus uh, back in 319 that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they would be filled with the fullness of God. It's a corporate thing together. We all need to be maturing as Christians. But we can't get away from the individual responsibility that we have to take here. Paul says, if we're filled up, then we're no longer like to be like children. Being like children, we might think it's a good thing in humility and innocence and desire to learn, but it's not in uh, ignorance or in instability. Uh, Children are like uh, small boats in a great storm. Look at verse 14. Uh, They are tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Immature Christians, Christians who are not being filled up, they never know their own mind or come to settled convictions in line with what's orthodox biblical doctrine. Instead, it's the latest preacher, the latest podcaster, the latest book, the latest Twitter thread, the latest TikTok they saw that shapes their beliefs. Every new theological fad then becomes their biggest and most important thing. Paul says, don't be like that. Instead, we need to be speaking the truth in love. Rather than being children, we need to grow up. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The emphasis is on the head, Jesus Christ, who we grow into. But notice the whole body, the one body, needs every part, every joint working well, equipped. It's like an illustration of what Paul has been saying. We're to walk in the diversity, every joint here today, coming together, walking in unity so that we grow in maturity. I've had uh, various uh, running injuries, we might call them, before. Pain in the shins, shin splints. 
and from running with bad form. When you get them, you have to rest. You can't run. And uh, as you uh, find yourself not running, you also find yourself walking slightly funny with shin splints because uh, you find that, that you're trying to avoid pain and discomfort. And as you walk funny, you begin to find that your ankle gets a bit funny because you've been walking a bit differently or uh, you get sort of a pain in your lower back because you've been walking wrong. One part of the body going a little bit wrong has a knock-on effect to the rest of the body. You see, each part of the body needs to be working. When one isn't, it has an effect on other parts. So it's the same with God's people. We grow up by having truth and love, each one of us together. Truth, that perfect counter for the storm of false teaching out there. A truth, that perfect counter for all human craftiness. And it's in love that the church builds up, gets filled up, grows up. We don't have truth without love, because truth and no love means that we're uh, built up, but instead, we're not built up, but instead we get sort of hardened and sharpened. We pick fights for the sake of it, and the smallest po- possible error gets pounced upon and can't be let go. The truth becomes hard without love, and love, well, becomes soft if it's not strengthened with truth. Without truth, you could have the most loving church full of very, very loving people, but it would be no different to a small boat being battered about in a storm. It would stand for absolutely nothing. So there is no other route when it comes to Christian maturity. We've seen the walk of the Christian life is to be one where we walk in unity, where we walk in diversity. Everyone with gifts bring something to the table. Everyone on the walk together, growing into maturity, united upon Christ, ministering to one another. So what would it look like for our church to be marked by people who walk the new walk? What would it look like for you yourself uh, to set out on this walk, to uh, move to the right on this walk and look left yourself? Why don't you take a moment, ask God to show you that in your heart now and think upon it. We'll continue then in prayer later.